Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, with a message entitled, Riot. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, verses 28 to 41, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I suspect that everyone listening to my voice has seen images of riots. I hope that none of you have ever participated in one, but if you have, I do hope that you've had time to reflect on both what has occurred and also of your own part in it. See, riots aren't about reason. There's no nuanced debate in a riot. There's no opportunity to hear the other side of a matter, to weigh out the merits and weaknesses of one given side in a debate. Riots are about passion. They're primitive. Indeed, they appeal to the basest of human emotions. But riots also are opportunities for acting lawlessly. I mean, think about the images you have seen. Windows smashed, stores robbed as people blatantly steal anything they can get their hands on. Buildings are burned, automobiles are overturned and destroyed, people are beaten. Unrestrained anger is everywhere. And the longer the riot goes on, the more passion replaces reason. No one asks, what will be the consequence of this? Everyone is simply in the moment. You know, sometimes riots result in deaths and in lynchings. And that's because the people in the crowd act like wild and hungry animals in a pack. They're looking for a victim, someone to tear apart. So what's the relationship of the Christian faith to public protests? Now, when I say that, I want to distinguish between a protest and a riot. But we also know that without clear-headed leadership, protests grow into riots. And that's why I didn't ask, what's the relationship of the Christian faith to riots? You see, because riots are always, without exception, antithetical to the life of Christ. That is, when the chanting begins and the destruction, when the loud voices of anger cry out, you know, whipping up ever-increased frenzy, any follower of Christ will either exit the riot immediately or try to protect the targets of the fury of the mob. But what about well-ordered and legitimate protests? Well, we never find Christians participating in those things actually in the Bible. We do find Christians appealing to the courts and insisting on their rights as well as demanding protection. However, you know, from my vantage point, I mean, Christians, I don't think, are forbidden from protesting for a just cause. But also, this is from my vantage point, Christians don't often participate in these things. And one of the reasons for that is that we seek to be winsome. We seek to love our enemies, not demonize them. We seek rational debate, not slogans. We seek an audience with lawful government officials, but we don't seek to be disruptive. We wish to tell, you know, even to government officials that we would never vote for, that notwithstanding our strong disagreement with them, that we still believe that there is no power that has not been appointed by God, and that we take very seriously our obligation to pray fervently for them and for God's blessing on their lives. And so from my vantage point, Christians can participate in lawful and respectful protests, but I don't think the kind of passionate chanting that goes on. I think James stated well the Christian ethic in James 3, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Those virtues don't mix well with yelling in the streets, but those virtues can work in a peaceful 
and respectful protest, a protest that doesn't stop people from getting to their place of work or threaten people with violence. And Acts 19 is not about Christians protesting. Rather, it's about pagans protesting Christians, a protest that turned into a violent riot. When such a thing happens, how are we to respond? And you might remember that from our study of Acts, a great company of people have been coming to Christ in a great and important city, that is the city of Ephesus. Indeed, the impact of Christ on the lives of new believers was so profound that many burned their books on magic and incantations and casting spells and so forth. And with that, a great many people put away their idols. And that phenomenon was so great in the city that it had an impact on the artisans and workers and those engaged in making idols for the temple of Artemis. Layoffs were surely coming. The idol business was drying up. And furthermore, Demetrius the silversmith calls a meeting saying that there's now a danger that the magnificence of Artemis is coming to an end. Well, the meeting spilled out into the streets. I mean, who's to blame for this? And the answer wasn't hard to come by. Paul brought Christianity to Ephesus, and he had been teaching that gods made by human hands are not gods at all. He and those who converted to Christ were all involved, they were told, in an all-out attack on Artemis and her glory and the culture of Ephesus. These men are destroying our religion. Are we going to let this keep on happening without even saying a word? Will we let these men destroy our city and our religion and the glory of Artemis? Well, we're not going to sit by and let this happen. And you can almost hear the crowd being whipped up. And by now, they're in the streets saying these things. Acts 19, 28 and 29. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Now notice what the followers of Demetrius are not shouting. See, they're not shouting, we're getting laid off from our businesses. You know, our businesses are in danger. And of course, Luke has told us that was the real issue. You know, instead, they're shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You know, that chant is highly effective. It's whipping up a fervor. You know, that chant doesn't invite reason or the impartiality that James speaks about. That chant is loud. It's intended to drive out all other chants. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians over and over again. And as that chant grows, it grows in passion. Now, Luke adds one feature in his telling of the story. The city, he says, is filled with confusion. I mean, you think about that. The city is not filled with clarity of thought. The city is not filled with information. The city is not filled with meaningful dialogue. Indeed, the city is not even filled with debate. No, no, none of those things. The city is filled with confusion. And in the confusion, no doubt, Demetrius and his company, which has now been joined by those who never heard Demetrius' speech, but some in the crowd are looking for Paul. Let's get the troublemaker. Sounding very much like a lynch mob now. Well, they don't find him. Instead, they find two of Paul's traveling companions. Now, on a side note, you know, Luke has never introduced those two men before now. I think in this brief statement that the crowd found two of Paul's traveling companions, that we do get an insight into Paul's methodology. He almost never traveled alone. He constantly surrounds himself with students and fellow ministers and missionaries and others who provide help. I could only imagine the kind of help he would have needed. I mean, tickets for ships, lodging places to stay. 
names of key people Paul wanted to contact, secretarial work that would keep Paul's schedule in order. All of that was required, and Paul would have surrounded himself with able people, and others would very quickly have recognized those assistants to Paul. So at any rate, some of the crowd sees two men, Gaius and Aristarchus. They're Gentile Christians, Gaius, that's a Greek name, Aristarchus, that's a Roman name. It seemed likely these two men came to Christ under Paul's ministry. Both men came from Macedonia. The name Gaius is mentioned in other places, but it was a very common name. So we really don't know anything about him or who he was. But we probably know more about Aristarchus. Acts 20 verse 4 says that he later traveled with Paul to Troas. In Philemon, verse 24, Paul calls him his fellow worker. And in Colossians 4.10, Paul calls him his fellow prisoner. So clearly, that man went to prison with Paul, a faithful man. At any rate, these two brothers were dragged along with the rioters to the theater in Ephesus. It was a large theater. I hear estimates anywhere from a you know seating capacity to 12,000 to 25,000. Now, I've been there, and I just can't guess. But it did also have a large stage at the center, so I have no doubt it was filled to capacity and more. Everyone is shouting. Acts 19, 30 to 31. And when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. You know, mention of the Asiarchs, that's fascinating. They're not Christians. They are keepers of the imperial Roman cult of emperor worship. They were men of high rank. They were immediately alerted. And these men would have known Paul and his activities, and it would seem they were favorably inclined to him. I'm going to say more about that later, but it seems to me that Paul had not, in any of his teaching, taken on the imperial cult of Rome. Yeah, he was calling people to come to Christ and in their conversion to abandon all that they had held in the past. But he's not going around speaking against Rome. He's not carrying on a crusade against the gods and goddesses of the Roman Empire. Furthermore, he had sought positive relationships with Roman government officials and had created friendship networks there. That was about to work in his favor. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations, it's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, its broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes our bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine. This year, we're excited to share that Truth and Life will have a unique discipleship focus. Each issue will highlight a different marker of discipleship. We trust that each of the elements of discipleship explored this year will help lay a foundation of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And thank you so much for your continued financial support. Your gifts allow resources like Truth and Life magazine and so many others to fulfill its mission of providing trustworthy Bible teaching. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, Visit us at backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. I have no doubt that if Paul had gone to the riot to try to speak to the rioters, 
it would have been like pouring gas on a fire. As I've said, anything Paul would have tried to say would have been drowned out by the chant, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, and in a frenzy, the crowd may well have rushed in on Paul and killed him on the spot. He needed to listen to others, even though I'm sure his heart was breaking because he wanted to support Gaius and Aristarchus who were on their own. Acts 19, 32 to 34. Now some cried one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We're now being introduced to another man, a man we've also not met before. His name is Alexander. So he was a Jew, and no doubt he he was a member of the synagogue. It would seem that he was not a follower of Christ, but he would have come with haste, and he was concerned by what was happening. So who is he? Well, some think that he's mentioned later in 2 Timothy 4.14, where Paul mentions a man, Alexander the coppersmith, who did him great harm. Now, we don't know if this is the same man. Alexander is a very common name. If Alexander the coppersmith brought harm to Paul, I, I think I'm assuming that Alexander the coppersmith was involved in the idol business. So he wasn't a member of the synagogue. I think he's a different guy. But there's another possibility. Paul mentions 1 Timothy 1.20, another Alexander who Paul said made shipwreck of his faith. Well, we don't know. But remember the drama behind the book of 1 Timothy. Paul has sent Timothy to the church at Ephesus in order for the church to take out false teachers. Well, it could have been the same Alexander. We just don't know. But it seems that Alexander, who is mentioned by Luke in Acts 19, must have been an able leader in the synagogue, And some in the synagogue, in this hour of desperation, wanted Alexander to be there and speak on behalf of the Jewish community. So why? Well, it seems that the synagogue leadership wanted to distance themselves from the Christians. And the reason for that must have been that both the Christians and the synagogue believed that there was but one God and that God's people were to be separate from the idols. And because in this matter, their belief structure was exactly the same, it seems quite likely that the synagogue was concerned. I mean, they're fine if Paul and the Christians go down to a mob. They just don't want to be dragged along with them. And furthermore, a number of rabbis in Paul's time gave counsel to synagogues in the various cities in the Roman Empire that the synagogues were not to preach against the gods and goddesses in Rome. I think Paul probably followed that counsel as well. And by the way, let me interject a few thoughts here. Given that Paul had secured favor with the Asiarchs, I would have thought that although he was clear that Christians were not to be involved in idol temples, that Paul at the same time didn't fire verbal missiles at the temples and their gods. And that might tell us how Christians today living in a stridently secular and anti-Christian culture, should behave. We do little good to the advancement of the gospel by being reactionary or by mocking our culture or by showing disdain for it. We should rather encourage the church to be an alternative to the culture. We should preach Jesus, not constant criticism of the culture. Nonetheless, back to our text in Acts. 
You know, Alexander can make no headway. He's drowned out by the chant, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. The chant just goes on for hours. Alexander is hustled out of the way. The passion of the crowd grows. This now carries on two hours of chanting. Verse 35 begins with the word, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd. (laughs) How did he manage that? Well, I think the best way to understand that is to understand who the town clerk was. You know, when we read the words town clerk, we tend to think of someone who keeps records and oversees accounts and is given responsibility to, you know, oversee routine administrative matters. You know, clerks don't usually give leadership. They carry out the leadership orders of others. So in that case, the translation town clerk, it's probably a misleading translation. This is not a minor bureaucrat. The town clerk was the chief administrative officer of the city of Ephesus. He also served as the liaison between the town assembly and the officials in Rome. I suppose we might compare him to the mayor of a large city today. So at any rate, he was the key man who would report from Rome and to Rome. He's the key figure, and everyone in the city would have recognized him. My sense is that when he entered the theater, he may have done so with the force of arms, with guards, even soldiers. And the presence of force brought the chanting and raging to a quiet. Now it was time for him to speak, and the question would be whether this man would acquiesce to the crowds or whether he would take a different line. You might remember in Acts 16, Paul is in Philippi. A crowd brought Paul before the magistrate. That magistrate was intimidated by the crowd, and Paul was beaten. But in Acts 18, in Corinth, the Roman proconsul, a man named Gallio, was not intimidated by the demands of the synagogue, and he had acted according to Roman law, and he had protected Paul in his free exercise of religion. So, but in Philippi, there had been a crowd, a mob, shall we say, and in Corinth, it had only been the synagogue. But now we're in Ephesus, and we have to wonder what the town clerk is going to do. What kind of a man is he? And I hope you see that in asking this question, it only reinforces that we today need to pray most earnestly for those in positions of authority, that they would be guided by principle and by law that they'd have the courage to stand against a mob and defend the rights of all. See, I, for my part, do not pray to get a Christian prime minister, since I don't look to prime ministers or to presidents or to any other political leader to advance the Christian faith. I look to a robust, spirit-filled church, a church that stands on the truths of Scripture, that loves Christ above all things and is willing to pay whatever price is necessary to advance the faith. That's where evangelism happens. I look to political leaders and magistrates and community leaders to ensure that peace is maintained, that riots are quelled, that the rights of all are equally defended. And I would encourage all who are followers of Jesus to think in this manner. For God did not appoint political leaders to advance the faith. That's the duty of his church. Well, let's see what this town clerk does. Verses 35 to 41. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. 
If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Notice the skills of this unnamed town clerk, in our words, the mayor of the city. He begins by affirming what the majority in the city believed, and I have no doubt he he would have believed it as well. Who doesn't know, he says, that the city of Ephesus, of all the cities of the world, is called upon to house the temple of Artemis, the great fertility goddess. And since that's so, he says, and since she's a goddess, what earthly power can threaten her? He's insinuating that Demetrius, the silversmith, and his group actually don't believe this because they think it takes a riot in the city to maintain the goddess in her position. Nonsense, he says. She's a goddess. You can't dethrone her. Next, he says, the men you seek to destroy, they have not blasphemed Artemis. Not one of us have heard them preaching against the temple. So what's all this passion about? Have you even got your facts straight? And then comes this master stroke. If there are genuine wrongs that have been done, if laws have been broken, or the nature of our culture has been threatened, that's what the law is for. Bring these men to court. That's why we have laws. So you'll have to, in a court of law, set forth your case and have that case examined by people who are interested in objectivity. And that's the lesson for all of us. We need to pray for the countries in which we live. Pray for the rule of law to prevail. Pray for wisdom of leading government authorities. Pray that the wicked elements in our culture would be curtailed by law. And above all, let the government know that we're not a threat to it but that we are law keepers. We're not rioters. We are model citizens. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you, how should the Bible speak to how we would address our shift from from being a Judeo-Christian country to a predominantly secularized country? Yeah, in many ways, I mean, we are becoming the kind of a country that we read about in the book of Acts. So, um, you know, my response to this shift is that we're just going to have to read it more often. And as we read it, I try to imagine that you are in that very situation. And then as we imagine that, we will be able to make some application points to our own culture. And I think that Acts is probably going to be more relevant to us than it probably has been to uh, Christians, at least in the West, for a long time. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, confronting the power base right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We're coming to the end of your opportunity to register for the Back to the Bible Canada 2023 Israel experience from April 16th to the 24th. The time is drawing close and we're nearing capacity. So if you've been thinking about joining us for the Israel Experience 2023 with Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, special musical guest Amanda Stott, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, now's the time. We're also offering an optional Jordan extension April 24th to the 29th. 
Please note that all costs associated with this event are paid for by the participants. No ministry funds are used. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.